You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. We're continuing Genesis 3 today, if you'd like to open your Bibles in preparation. I've said a number of times in the past that the early chapters of Genesis are foundational to the whole Bible. They lay the groundwork for virtually every doctrine about God, man, sin, salvation, end times, almost anything you can think of. It's only in seed form here, of course, in the early chapters of Genesis. We need the rest of the Bible to get the whole picture, to expand our understanding of them. But we don't get that full picture without what's here at the start. A.W. Pink explains the importance of these chapters when he writes, Here we find the divine explanation of the present fallen and ruined condition of our race. Here we learn of the subtle devices of our enemy, the devil. Here we behold the utter powerlessness of man to walk in the path of righteousness when divine grace is withheld from him. Here we discover the spiritual effects of sin, man seeking to flee from God. Here we discern the attitude of God towards the guilty sinner. Here we mark the universal tendency of human nature to cover its own moral shame by a device of man's own handiwork. Here we are taught of the gracious provision which God has made to meet our great need. Here begins that marvellous stream of prophecy which runs all the way through the Holy Scriptures. And here we learn that man cannot approach God except through a mediator. In these chapters we see the doctrine of the Trinity in seed form. We learn of the eternality and the omnipotence of God. We've seen the representative nature of the first man for all who follow after him. There's almost nothing that we find later in the Bible that isn't at least hinted at here in the early chapters of Genesis. Here we find the first promise of the defeat of the enemy and man's rescue through Jesus Christ. In these verses that we'll read today, we see what theologians call the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. And here we see that God is a covenant-keeping God who is both just and merciful. We see his long-suffering patience in that he doesn't strike Adam and Eve dead on the spot for sinning, but allows them to live for hundreds of years more. That might remind you of a verse in 2 Peter chapter 3, which says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This chapter also speaks of God's holiness, For when Adam sinned, God didn't say, that's okay, don't worry about it. No, the penalty of death still applied. Sin has consequences, and grace doesn't nullify the principle of sowing and reaping. These are all themes that continue and are developed right through to the end of the Bible. It's almost impossible to overstate the importance of the first chapters of Genesis, and especially of Genesis chapter 3 in properly understanding the rest of the Bible. We'll see today the beginning of the substitutionary sacrificial system as a payment for sin that culminates in the ultimate sacrifice on that first Good Friday 2,000 years ago. So let's read our text beginning in verse 9. 
the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now before we go any further, I want you to notice here that God is referred to as the Lord God in the small caps L-O-R-D. You may recall that I recently talked about the Hebrew names of God that are used in the Old Testament. The Bible opens with an account of God creating everything. And the word for God used there is Elohim, a plural form of the Hebrew word that just means simply God. It speaks of his transcendent power, but it doesn't speak of a relationship in any way with his creation. But beginning in chapter 2 with the creation of mankind, that name changes to Lord God. That's the Hebrew words Yahweh Elohim. That And Yahweh, as we've heard, is a relational term. It literally means I am. It's a name that's pregnant with meaning. It's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. And it's also the name that Jesus claimed for himself in John chapter 8 that caused the religious leaders to get serious about putting him to death. Yahweh is a covenant name. It's a name God uses for himself when talking about his relationship with his chosen people. It's also a name that no one has the right to use of him unless they're in covenant relationship with him. In chapter 2, Yahweh Elohim creates the first man, Adam, from the soil and creates the first woman, Eve, from Adam's side. Now you may not have noticed it, but chapter 3 begins with the serpent talking to Eve and the serpent only ever refers to God as Elohim, just plain God. He never refers to him as Lord God or Yahweh alone. Is that important? You bet it is. It's important because the serpent, the devil, is not and never will be in covenant relationship with God. That's a privilege that's that's reserved exclusively for humans. If we went back a few verses, we'd see that Eve, when talking to the serpent, doesn't use the name Yahweh either. That doesn't bode well for her, is It's revealed in how easily she ignored her relationship with Yahweh and listened to the serpent. Anyway, Genesis 3, 9, continuing, But the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, 
till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In the last few weeks, we learn about the origin of sin that infects and corrupts all of creation. It damaged the pure and innocent relationship between Adam and Eve, bringing in guilt and shame and blame shifting and mistrust and friction. And it's damaged us all physically, causing increased pain in childbirth and child raising. It has damaged creation to the extent that the soil now produces weeds and thorns and work becomes a chore, not a joy. And it began the process of decay that ensures all of us after a lifetime of toil, struggle, pain, loss and grief, will one day be be committed to the ground and turn back to dust. But we skipped over the curse that God pronounced on the serpent, that mouthpiece of the devil. It's interesting to compare the curse on him with the curses pronounced on the man and the woman. For the curses on Adam and Eve contain seeds of hope and of redemption. Not so for the devil. His is pure judgment and condemnation with no prospect of relief or redemption. In fact, almost as if to rub in the complete failure of his scheme, the curse on him contains a message of hope for those he's just deceived. The Lord God said to the serpent, it tells us in verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God curses the serpent. Although it's actually a curse on the devil who is speaking through the serpent. It's a curse in picture language. When God says on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. That's a picture of humiliation and subjection and defeat. It's an indication that the devil will never be victorious, no matter how many days his life should last. It's a message of doom and despair, and it's a fitting punishment for the one who chose to reject his life as a beautiful and exalted creature in the very presence of God himself. So the devil, that old deceiver of the nations, was the first one to learn of a deliverer to come who would destroy his own works to him was given the promise and the prophecy of his defeat and of mankind's redemption from the sin that he inspired in contrast the lord god promises the man and the woman a descendant the descendant who will crush the devil that must infuriate the devil Maybe that's why he works so relentlessly to bring harm to humanity who is made in the image of God. Maybe that's why he prowls like a roaring lion seeking those he may devour. From the very beginning, 
He knows his attempted coup has failed and he has no hope of redemption or rescue from that failure. Now, it's only a tiny hint here, but there is a definite hint of the virgin birth in this text too. It's made more plain in other translations than, such as the King James or the New American Standard than it is here in the ESV translation that I'm using. But at verse 15 in the NASB, for example, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word offspring used in the ESV translation actually means seed. So how does that hint at the virgin birth? Because it's only the man who has seed. That's an old word for sperm. The woman never has seed. She carries the egg that the seed fertilises. And yet it is the seed of the woman who will bruise, that is crush, the serpent's head. That hints at an implantation in her body from an external source. There's such incredible depth and substance in God's word. If only we would take the time to read it, to study it, and to think about it. Now, Adam and Eve are not told how far in the future this would happen. I dare say they expected it to happen with their firstborn son. Sadly, he would prove to be anything but a rescuer. In fact, he would commit the first murder and head up a family tree of murderous descendants. But the devil didn't know when or who this seed would be either, which is why he's worked so hard through the ages to destroy the people of God. If he could just wipe out the Jews, he'd never have to worry about the promised seed who would defeat him once and for all. And many times in history he's almost succeeded. If God were not sovereignly sovereignly in control, this seed, this saviour, never would have come. And none of us could ever have been rescued. Sadly, it'd be a long, long time before the promised seed would finally come. But come he would, for God himself promised it. So it could never be in doubt. God keeps his word. In all the generations born since that time, there's been enmity between the woman's offspring and the devil's offspring, the devil's servants. Many people don't even believe that there is a real devil, let alone imagine that he's their enemy. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't hate every single one of the human race, simply because we're all created in the image of God. And he especially hates those who have put their trust in the promised seed, in the Saviour who would crush that serpent's head, in Jesus Christ. He has a particular hatred for us, and he works particularly hard to destroy us. Now, you may recall that last week I talked about the curse of increased pain in childbearing and childrearing. There was one mother who experienced that pain, that grief, more than any woman before or since. She, in fact, was the one who bore the promised seed, a virgin who had never been with a man, carried from supernatural conception to humble birth in a dirty stable, the one who would soon crush the devil's head. When she took the infant Jesus, 40 days old, to the temple to present him to the Lord, a devout man by the name of Simeon was led there by the Holy Spirit. 
And on seeing the baby Jesus, he took him up in his arms and he proclaimed, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now may dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon knew what he was looking at. Simeon knew who he was holding. This one, still a baby, would be the one who defeats the devil once and for all. No wonder the devil mounted such attacks on him and on his family while he was still a child. Destroy him and defeat God. But that wasn't the end of Simeon's prophecy. Simeon went on to bless Joseph and Mary and he warned, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that is spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Truly a sword did pierce Mary's soul as she watched her firstborn son be rejected, be despised, be unfairly arrested and unjustly condemned. And she had to stand by and watch him suffer an agonising death on a Roman cross. The words spoken to Eve back in the garden were fulfilled in Mary. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. While Mary was watching her son die, he was fulfilling the curse on the devil. I wonder if she understood that in her suffering and her grief. But the devil, no doubt thinking he'd finally succeeded in defeating his great enemy, merely bruised his heel. For three days later, this dying and dead man, this seed of the woman, would walk free of the grave, never more to die. And by defeating death, he struck a fatal blow to the devil. He crushed his head. For death and the fear of death was the greatest tool, the most powerful weapon that the devil had in his armoury. But if that weapon is disarmed, if it's possible to rise from the dead in a new and incorruptible body, then the devil's power is stripped from him. There's still another picture from the garden being fulfilled on that cross. Verse 21 tells us the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. You may recall that I talked recently about what a pathetic excuse for clothing fig leaves would make. It really does speak of our feeble and useless attempts to hide our sin and guilt and shame. For fig leaves, like any foliage, soon dries out and turns to dust. All our own efforts to cover our sin are like dust. There's nothing solid, nothing substantial or long-lasting to them. If our sin is to be covered over, it would need something better. It would need something more permanent. And so the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, the covenant-keeping God, made clothing out of animal skins for them. Don't rush over this text, just because it's so familiar to us. This is one of the most important verses in the early pages of the Bible. It's one of the most important events in the early history of humanity. This must have been shocking, even horrifying to Adam and Eve. Think about it. 
There'd never been a drop of blood spilt in the garden. There'd never been a death before. And yet now an innocent animal, most likely a young lamb that moments before had been frolicking in this place of beauty and abundance, an innocent animal was bleating helplessly as its throat was cut and its blood was spilt on the ground. We too should be horrified by that, for it tells us that sin is serious. It has deadly consequences. God meant what he said when he warned that sin would cost a life. Except it's not Adam's life. It's not Adam's life that's taken. It's a substitute. God is showing us in this little picture that he would accept the penalty for sin from another's hand, from another's life. And that other one's life would cover this one's nakedness and shame and sin. Now, a sheepskin is significantly tougher than a fig leaf, but even sheepskins don't last forever. Eventually, that skin would fall apart and another death would be required to cover sin again. And this process would happen again and again until there was a sacrifice, a life given that could provide a covering that would last forever. We see the sacrifice happening again in the next chapter when Abel, Eve's secondborn, brings an offering to Yahweh from the flock. And Noah continues the practice when he's released from the ark that saved his family and saved the world's wildlife from the flood. And as we read through the Old Testament, we see an increasingly formalised sacrificial system, culminating in the regular and frequent sacrifice of lambs and goats and doves and bulls that was the daily life of the priests who represented the people before God in the temple in Jerusalem. It all finds its origins here in Genesis chapter 3. Who could count the number of innocent beasts that lost their lives to cover over man's sin through the centuries. For the blood of bulls and goats and lambs had no power to cover over sins forever. Hebrews 10 tells us, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are offered continually every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to have been offered, since the worshippers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These sacrifices were only meant to be a temporary solution to sin. They were never meant to be permanent. Rather, they were meant to be reminders, reminders of the serious consequences of sin and reminders of the promises in Genesis chapter 3 of a seed who would one day forever deal with sin. But dealing with sin forever would require more precious blood than that of mere animals, more precious blood than that of sinful humans. For our blood is already tainted by sin. It will require a perfect man, one who has never sinned, to give his life on behalf of sinners. And this offering 
would be successful. For it was offered by the Lamb of God himself, a perfect offering without spot or blemish. And this Lamb would be both the offering and the priest who does the offering. Hebrews 7 tells us this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of the legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. This is one life that the devil could never corrupt, could never destroy. For the life of Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, an indestructible life and an incorruptible life. That's what God promised in the curse on the serpent. That's what God hinted at in the killing of an innocent victim to cover over nakedness and shame and sin back in the garden. That's why these early chapters of Genesis are so important. For they reveal to us not only all the doctrines that A.W. Pink and I referred to at the start of the message, but they reveal the, the power of God to fulfil his promises. And they reveal to us the certainty that what God says will happen, will happen. Our text today closes with words that might seem to be harsh, but are actually quite gracious. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That sounds harsh. It might sound even unloving to not let Adam back in to have access to that tree of life. But imagine if Adam, after succumbing to his evil desires and falling into sin, were permitted to now eat of the tree of life. He would have lived forever in a broken, corrupt and poisoned state. <coughs> that would have been a punishment from which there was no return and no release. To live forever in this state of eternal and ever-increasing degradation would make us long for the simple addiction to the ring that Gollum suffered in Lord of the Rings. So God barred the way back to the tree of life, lest the man live forever in this sorry condition. Charles Spurgeon points out, it was mercy that prevented his taking of the tree of life and thus living forever. The fruit which produced immortality could only do him harm. Immortality in a state of sin and misery is not that eternal life which God designed for man. Man's expulsion from Eden was for his ultimate good. While exposing him to physical death, it preserved him for eternal or spiritual death. From eternal or spiritual death. One day that tree of life will be available to eat from again. One day the paradise of Eden will be restored and expanded to accommodate the multitudes of humanity who have sought cover for their nakedness and sin in the Lamb of God himself. The Apostle John, in a vision that harkens back to Genesis chapter 3, saw the river of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. 
and through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The tree, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Genesis 3 and Revelation 20, 21, 22 are bookends to the Bible. Genesis 3 lays the foundation. Revelation shows us the fulfilment. So this is what every person who has ever put their trust in Jesus Christ has to look forward to. A restoration and a renewal of this earth, of that garden, of completely transparent and intimate relationship with God. That's what looking, worth looking forward to. But it comes with the condition that you have to put your trust in Jesus Christ. For those who refuse to do that, there remains only weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth that makes Adam's banishment and sweat and toil look comfortable by comparison. Genesis 3 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible for it reveals to us how we got to be in this state but it reveals our rescue. It reveals our rescue in a lamb, perfect lamb, who lays down his life on our behalf. If you'd like to take some communion, some juice and some bread now, we'll share in that as we finish up. We sang this morning in a song called Scandal of Grace. Grace, what have you done? Murdered for me on that cross. Accused in absence of wrong, my sin washed away by your blood. We saw that. In Genesis chapter 3, where an innocent animal was put to death to provide a covering, a clothing for Adam and Eve. Murdered for me on that cross. We went on to sing the scandal of grace. You died in my place, so my soul will live. Grace truly is a scandal. It should not happen. We should suffer the punishment for our sins. We deserve to suffer the punishment for our sins. Christ, that Lamb of God, did not deserve it. And yet he took it on as our representative, our Lamb that takes away sin forever. Let's just reflect on that as we eat and drink. Lord, what you did on our behalf is beyond our understanding. We don't really grasp the depth of our sin. We don't really grasp the glory of your grace. Yet, Lord, we are thankful for it all the same. We're thankful that by your Holy Spirit you have given us renewed hearts, renewed spirits. You have applied the blood of Jesus Christ, that innocent victim, to cover over our sin. And you have clothed us, Lord, clothed us with the righteousness of Christ that enables us to forever stand in your presence, Father, to come before you with boldness, to confess our sins before you with boldness and confidence, Lord, that 
that that scandal of grace has covered over our sin. So Lord, we thank you for the blood and the juice, the, the bread and the juice that we've just shared in. Thank you for that, what that represents. We thank you mostly that you have chosen us out of all the seeding maths of humanity, out of our sin to save us, Lord. Pray for my friends, my family here today, that you will work these truths into their heart and you will open their eyes to the truth that your word reveals to us, the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you enable us to share this with those who don't yet know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.